0: everybody, and thanks for joining us in another of our series of podcast interviews on the extended public health enterprise. I'm Dave Speiser, the Executive Vice President of Corporate Strategy at ICF, and I'm really excited to have two great guests today. First of all, I have a colleague, and I'd like to ask her to introduce herself.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Nicola Dawkins-Lynn, and I am a Vice President in our public health
0: business. Great. And thanks for joining me, Nicola. It's great to uh, have somebody in the conversation that that knows a lot more about public health (laughs) than I do. Uh, And our our guest of the week is Lori Freeman, uh, CEO of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. Great to be here with you. I really appreciate you joining us today. Before we get started, can you just describe NATO a little bit to us and its, its membership, its mission, and kind of what you're all about?
2: Sure. So NATO is a, a national nonprofit organization, and we represent the nearly 3,000 county and city health departments across the country. Our mission is really to improve the health of communities by strengthening and advocating for our local health departments. And we do this ultimately with a goal and a vision towards optimal health, equity, and security for all people in all communities across our country.
0: That sounds like a really important mission. Obviously, that's why we're so glad to have you with us today. One of the through lines of all the discussions we've been having here on this series of interviews uh, is the, the extended public health enterprise, in other words, the the. the the superset of all of the official organizations that have a role in public health at whatever level of jurisdiction or whatever uh, part of the sector. One of the things that we've heard from other guests is this notion of fragmentation and the notion that things are done you know, very differently across in different parts of the country. Uh, since it seems we don't have a single approach that's prescriptive around the country, how do the strategies and priorities of different geographies uh, you know, differ, and what does that mean for NACCHO as kind of the umbrella for all local public health organizations?
2: Sure. You know, you're absolutely correct. You know, of the nearly 3,000 local health departments uh, across the country, many of them serve different sizes and types of community. In fact, a lot of people don't realize that about two-thirds of the local health departments are actually rural and serve communities with populations of 50,000 or less. There's only about 6% of health departments, maybe around 30 across the country that serve over half of the population of the country. So there's this big, wide and diverse group of, of local health departments um, serving different communities. nature considers them all crucial to the infrastructure of our governmental public health system, and we support them all. But we do apply different approaches sometimes to small and rural health department, public health issues, versus maybe those of larger urban, big city health departments. Even health departments that serve suburbs can have different issues. But the common core among them all is that they serve their communities to improve the health of the entire community, not just one individual at a time. And there are practices that can be scaled up or down or modified to the need of the community. And strategies like that are used to prevent things like chronic disease that impact the lives of so many. Often, need to be done everywhere, just a little bit differently.
0: What are some of the differences in the ways that Natio, you know, engages with some of those local, some of those rural-focused uh, public health organizations?
2: We meet with them. We try to understand their unique needs, and it, and sometimes it depends on the issue that they're trying to address. Um, you know, when you have a a health department serving a rural community that's Um, spread out in large geographical areas. Uh, Things like access, easy access to care, access to trauma facilities, or even if you're having a baby, (laughs) making sure you can get to a location that um, you can safely have your child. Uh, So there's lots of different issues that affect them um, in different ways and their resources are also different and how they're staffed is different. So we try to pay attention to some of these differences um, but also some of the commonalities that exist with other health departments that might be larger. And, and again, and try to um, fit the, the, um, the resources to their specific needs.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Now, the field seems to have aligned around the CDC, you know, quote-unquote, 10 essential public health functions. Is there any ongoing conversation on how local public health leaders might want to broaden or modify those because they seem to be, you know, either a little bit generic or maybe not to speak quite as well to the current moment.
2: This is a great question, also a very timely one, because NACCHO um, has been involved for about a year in a national advisory group to to take a look at the 10 Essential Public Health Services and and make sure they're still relevant. You know, 25 years ago, when the 10 Essential Public Health Services framework was developed and released, it was a very big deal. NACCHO very proudly, even back then, was involved in its initial development to make sure that that framework truly represented the actualities of what local health departments were either currently doing in their communities, or maybe even reflected the bars of achievement that they could strive towards. But as importantly, it, it really served this purpose of explaining to all sorts of stakeholders, public health organizations, public health curriculums, at schools, community partners, healthcare government, community members themselves, the many roles that public health plays in communities across the country. And over those 25 years, the Essentials Framework has been used um, by local health departments in these same ways, but also to inform their strategic planning. But 25 years is a long time, a lot changes in our country. and. The overall landscape of health has changed a lot during that time. We've learned so much more about the factors that contribute to our health and that they have everything to do with the things that are not mentioned on that original framework. Things like, did you graduate from high school? What was your housing like? Your income? Did you have access to safe streets? Um, But our local health departments have been strategically working on these issues around health equity and those determinants that impact health equity for a very long time. So in this revision, centering equity was extremely important. And as recent events have also highlighted, in order for these services to be effective, we need to remove systemic and structural barriers like racism, poverty, and gender gender discrimination, for example, um, uh, that directly impact health. So our local health departments are really facing challenging times now. And this is a, a moment when these essential public health services um, can be quite fortuitous to us in helping us stand up and protect public health in its essential functions as well. So um, a lot of good work's been done and that equity piece has been added.
1: And that's a really interesting um, point, Lori, and a great segue into thinking about the social determinants of health. You know, um, I think we've come to understand that health outcomes are really heavily driven by the social determinants of health, but um, how can local public health organizations um, help to influence the social determinants of health beyond sort of their, their primary statutory capabilities? Well,
2: you know, as we learn more about disease, uh, you know, we're learning more about how the patterns of inequity and the distribution of disease and illness correspond to patterns of political, social, and economic inequality. And um, there, our local health departments address health equity and social justice every day in some way. Um, These health inequities are systemic, systematic patterned, unjust, actionable. Um, But therefore, they're not inevitable. They're not random or accidental. And so we can um, actually eradicate them. So local health departments are the chief health strategists for their communities they are responsible for understanding all the dynamics of their communities working across sectors like health systems, education, law enforcement, EMS housing, food, and agriculture on tactics to address these social determinants to create health equity in the community. Um, They focus on things like improving access to health care and social services, um, ensuring that they work to eliminate food deserts in neighborhoods that currently are only served by fast food restaurants, ensuring safe and affordable housing, Uh, working to rid communities of housing blight that contribute to safety, Uh, working with city planners to create safe streets where kids can play safely or adults can safely exercise. Local health departments work across these many spectrums with community partners to create the conditions that make health and well-being an easier choice for folks. And the ultimate goal is making it the only choice and removing these other barriers.
0: You know, one of the things you mentioned uh, was the role that nato plays in you know improving capacity of of local public health organizations um how how has that played out over time right the you talked about you know 25 years since the last uh original kind of ten essential public health functions and how you know the public health landscape has changed uh and i know you guys have been engaged you know that over that entire time uh how how have you all played an active role in kind of changing the, the capacity and capabilities of those organizations to include, but maybe going beyond, uh, uh, you know, addressing the social determinants?
2: You know, as with any great endeavor, you know, with time and experience, you always learn quite a lot. And with new knowledge, new science, new data points, and public health enterprise learns more and more about, what contributes to good health and what detracts from it. So our local health departments continue to learn, you know, just with this pandemic alone, think about what we knew eight months ago versus what we know today and how that has altered our views and behaviors individually and collectively as a country. I think one of the greatest pieces of the evolution of public health is our understanding that we actually have the capacity to impact the health of many people at once. Through changes to policy and our systems and the environment that surrounds us, you know, we 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 actually now have the experience and outcome data to show that a small change can make a big difference in a health outcome for uh, for many many people. And um, I always think about smoking. When when I grew up, smoking was everywhere, including in my own home. I was exposed.
0: Me too.
2: <laughs> I was exposed to a tremendous amount of secondhand smoke for most of my childhood and not just at home at restaurants public functions even on an airplane up until the late 80s if you can remember that
0: it was horrible it was it was
2: but through some rather sweeping legislation federally and then um that that got picked up through many states a lot of our country has places now where children and adults don't have to ever breathe secondhand smoke they have clean air to breathe and although no state had a comprehensive smoke-free law, like back in 2000, uh, by 2010, 25 states did. <laughs> and 16 states were enacting comprehensive smoke-free laws. So that policy alone changed our whole environment, changed health outcomes. You know, that the taxes on cigarettes further created better outcomes. And now we're at a 50-year all-time low point for adults and a 25 year low point for high school students in smoking. So um, those things you know, help us to grow and evolve our, our public health enterprise. And Nature helps local health departments improve their capabilities and capacity by providing things like technical assistance to them, serving as a resource for information, education, research tools, and, and really promoting that spread and scaling of evidence based practices and policies, and providing trainings and ongoing education to help them navigate changes in the field as well. And we invite to ensure that they have the resources to do their good work on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, it, these kinds of um, health policies really have the potential to make such a tremendous impact, um, as you said, on health for the broad population of Americans. But you know, a lot has been written lately about sort of the divisions in American society and um, uh, the policy lever, um, just as an example, is one that um, it can sometimes um, generate a greater division. Um, some of those kinds of divisions are, are apparent in the responses we see, for example, to the current pandemic. Um, How do NATO members experience this phenomenon of, of the division? And does it have impacts on their professional or personal success?
2: Yes, tremendously, you know, because local public health departments work on the ground on the front lines Mm -hmm. of the front lines Mm -hmm. of the community, Mm -hmm. you know, these divisions um, that we are um, seeing and really that we've experienced over long periods of time, if you think about it, are um, divisions in the very communities they are collectively serving. So the impact is direct to them. They are there were already deep differences among populations of the same community in terms of their health and their health outcomes, their ability to um, be safe and feel that they have control over their own destiny in terms of their health. Um, In some of these divisions, I think we we see them also having the the threat to widen the divisions even more and and make this work um, much harder. Um, Things like establishing and maintaining community trust in the governmental public health system, is very difficult right now and at a time um, you know at this moment in our history and time we just can't afford to have the trust and diminished in any way when we are still in the middle of a pandemic response trying our best to keep people healthy and safe and free of infectious disease and um, this work is done best when we can come together as community and overcome our differences and and get rid of this divisiveness and, and be on the same page in terms of um, listening and adhering to public health advice.
1: Absolutely.
0: Laura, I'd, I'd like to, to ask you um, a couple of questions about some of the guts, if you will, of, of the nuts and bolts of you know, the, the public health system kind of at, at the local level. Because uh, obviously I know that's the area where you guys have, have you know, more, more expertise than probably anybody in the country. Um, and you know we've been we've been trying to understand in all of our conversations with with experts like yourself just you know both the lay of the land and at some point in the future you know how things may you know want to be rethought. Um, to to start out with, how can we understand the connection between a local public health organization and and the other functions of local government that they're a part of? And I and you you'll probably want to tell us a little bit about you know, how that might differ in those different geographies that, that you know, differ so much in the, the role of their public health organizations. Sure, sure.
2: Well, public health, you know, is a governmental pu- uh, function. And so it sits squarely in, um, in the wheelhouse of other governmental public health functions, such as um, local housing and labor and um, in transportation, parks and recreation, um, and all of those areas. Uh, I think what's interesting about public health is that about 70% of our local health departments have a local board of health that the local health official um, actually reports to. Um, and um, that board of health, you know, does things like a broad oversight of the public health function policy development, some legal authority work improvement, resource stewardship and partner engagement, those types of things. These boards of health um, are typically appointed or sometimes elected from the community members themselves and include members from all kinds of sectors, health systems, business, community organizations, philanthropic, and they also include elected officials like mayors, county commissioners and the like. So public health officials are are unique in terms of government function and that they already engage across a lot of sectors just through these boards of health and in whom they have to work with in the community to to make policy systems and um, and other environmental changes. So there's a constant connection there. Um, and the health official would typically be serving, you know, at the highest level. Of local government, alongside the heads of some of these other agencies, in a well-respected position. In normal times, <laughs> um, yeah. it's been a little challenging during pandemic. Yeah. Um, but I, I think we might be talking about that later. But um, I think you know they they should and they um, are often are and just you know really um, well-respected pillars of their community.
0: The notion of having a that extra you know, governance model of that local board of health is um, seems to me a, you know, a, a, a potential great asset if it's, you know, high functioning and a real potential problem if, uh, you know, kind of negative behavior kind of seeps in it, it, is it a, is it a, on, on whole a positive aspect of governance or is it a more of a mixed bag?
2: on whole it's positive i would say where where we've seen some kinks occur in in this year in particular is is the the extra layers outside of the board of health where they connect with the um the county commissioners and the mayors and the elected officials and we just had some interesting Circumstances around this pandemic, where elected officials are, um, are often used as um, as the medium and the the pathway to the community, and not in those elected officials. You know, sometimes have different agendas. Um, they, they're elected so they're they're working with their constituencies and, and and interested in getting voted in the next time perhaps so um, public health hasn't always been uh, working alongside that structure in the way it should be at, at either the state or the local level and and um, the, the current administration uses governors a lot in, in their work, in their direct contact, and that filters down through to the community, through the mayors and county commissioners and in public health has um, had to fight their way uh, to decision-making during this response as a result.
0: Well, that calls out the, I mean, obviously the role of local public health leader, whether it, you know, whether the title is you know, county public health director or, you know, some other variant. Um, Clearly, they're what we in the consulting business would call kind of a critical job, right? They're the the, the critical link in the chain, uh, exerting leadership and influence. Um, what would you say are the most important qualifications for those local public health leaders? Uh,
2: you know, it, it, the interesting thing is that they they have to be well-trained beyond the principles of public health, in um, their role is sort of the chief health strategist for their community. They need a really wide and variable toolbox of skills that embraces things like um, business management, budgets, workforce development, Um human resource management, understanding how to lead, um, a community and be a convener, be a long-term strategist and dealing a lot with conflict and constant and sometimes unplanned interruptions to their work like pandemic, for example, or outbreaks. Um, so they are often the underpaid equivalent of a corporate CEO <laughs> is that what I like to consider them to be. Um, they are on every level uh, the same, doing the same work as a corporate CEO but doing it for their community. And um, their bottom line is not profit necessarily, it's community
1: impact and ability to change health outcomes. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that term, uh, Lori, chief public health strategist um, for the community. It really does a lot to convey, you know, the um, the breadth of responsibility um, that falls on their shoulders. Uh, where does, where does the talent for uh, local public health organizations come from? You know, is it local or do people move around the country? Um, what are, and what are their educational backgrounds to sort of prepare them for, for that level of, uh, of responsibility?
2: Sure, um, there is movement. There's a little bit more movement now than we'd like to see, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> due to the stressors of the job. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, um, these are folks. Uh, it, the interesting thing that I find about the current um, workforce condition uh, of public health is that there are uh, many many young people in public health programs across the country and they might be at their highest enrollment ever i don't know that for a fact but there's a lot of people enrolled in public health and there are colleges and universities across this country but not all of them are going into governmental public health um so they do move around um, and they take jobs you know where where they want um the nice thing about Taking a job in public health, you kind of can pick your community. <laughs> you could go back <laughs> to your hometown, or you could try something new and go do rural or urban. Um, so they do move around. Um, what we know from our national profile of local health departments is that um, the larger urban public health departments um, typically, you know, have many, many staff, uh, hundreds of staff. Um, and those are typically led by mostly by sort of a doctor level um md level person but when you get down to those rural and small health departments those are usually um, public health nurses leading those health departments so there is a big variation in, in who um is employed by health departments depending on their size um but um they move around they have different skills and um, a large public health department has a lot of different types of skilled workers on its workforce and environmental health health educators preparedness staff nutritionists public health physicians community health workers you know and and then it varies and the smaller that you get but um, they're a pretty diverse workforce
1: mm-hmm. and, and with that that great diversity um, uh, Are there particular areas or perhaps some particular areas within the different types of geographies um, uh, where you would say our current public health workforce is fairly spread thin, um, you know, are, are there particular places where we really need to bolster our public health staff?
2: I, I think we are seeing well, a crisis and then a crisis within a crisis. There's an overall crisis, for example, with um, the public health workforce being diminished by 21% over a decade. and. Um, this is um, quite um, challenging and alarming, um, as we even as we headed into pandemic, about okay, we're twenty percent down. How are we possibly going to be able to do the kind of work that's needed to um, to, um, to stop a pandemic? Um, but even within the workforce, though, you know, one of the more alarming. Um, Workforce reductions has been with public health nurses who've lost something like 36% of their workforce over that same period. So um, we, need, we need these public health nurses. Um, they're really important aspects of this job. Well, first, is nurses rock in general because they have this <laughs> multi-skilled <laughs> ability to do not just clinical work, but just lots of very practical skills as well. Um, and so that's um, an area that um, we're really suffering in
1: right now the loss of our nurses. And, you know, you talk about the skills that these public health nurses bring. Um, Are there particular skills that we need to be investing in for the public health workforce broadly?
2: Yes, we we need to keep. Um, you know, public health schools are. We hope they're they're learning this over time as we're learning about what skills are lacking in the workforce. But those critical skills of leadership, business management, um, staff management, um, budgeting, uh, strategic thinking, um, policy change. Those are things that um, haven't always been in the curriculum of schools of public health and uh, and some of those are uh, learned at uh, the school of hard knocks on the job, you know, but as we've seen with this crisis too, things like conflict management, um, you know, how to work in a, in a hostile environment, <laughs> whether it's with your own public or with your elected officials or um, those within you after you engage, you know, those are critical skills that these public health leaders need, just as I said before, just like the
1: corporate world. Absolutely, uh, and and definitely not uh, the kinds of things that you might traditionally think, um, you know, that you're gonna be trained in when you uh, go to um, uh, a nursing uh, public health nursing program, for yes. example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would also add
2: IT and informatics because, um, you know, as the 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 world becomes more um, technologically advanced and, um, and data needs to travel at the speed of sound. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, there's a resource issue with regard to trained um, informatics and, um, and technology and IT folks at, at the local level as well. And um, a greater workforce challenge there is just um, the ability to pay uh, comparable pay to um, the corporate counterparts in that world too.
1: Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, You know, and and so you're talking there about those um, uh, informatics and uh, kind of use of data capabilities. Similarly, um, I've got a question with respect to data systems. You know, um, because the collection, analysis, and communication of public health data really seem to be an important driver of performance, um, how would you characterize the current state of the data systems that are being used by local public health organizations? Not
2: ideal. No, um, we have a long way to go. You know, um, Mm -hmm. our country tends to invest in things that it can see, like uh, if you see a road that has a pothole, maybe fix (laughs) the pothole. If you you inspect a bridge that can't handle the traffic, you fix the bridge. Um, But this underlying infrastructure and public health, including the technology piece, is really lacking. There just has not been investment in it. Um, and because of how, uh, public health is structured, when we started out our conversation, we talked about just some of the, um, you know, we don't do everything the same way across this country, across all these health departments. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so this, the same holds true for this, um, this public health data and infrastructure piece. And, Local health departments um, do things different ways. And even within a local health department, because money comes and goes, systems are implemented and, um, uh, you know, for specific needs and, and then multiple systems become layered upon that. And there's not a lot of interoperability in place among these various systems, sometimes even within the same health department. So um, local health departments really need the expertise and skills to navigate this complex landscape of public health data modernization, in particular in the areas like data sharing, governance, infrastructure, um, information technology systems. Um, We struggle because policies that don't explicitly call out local health departments as a data recipient, can lead to really conservative interpretations that um, really make it challenging for local health departments to access certain types of data. <laughs> uh, so if things aren't building from the start at the state level or at the federal level that um, allow for data exchange and access for local health departments, then we're, we're at another deficit uh, point. So, there are so many challenges, I could probably spend an hour talking about just data <laughs> modernization. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, the good news is that this is being recognized as an area that we have
1: to make some headway on. Mm-hmm. And would you, um, what would you characterize as the, sort of the top priority, uh, you know, for Nature's membership around improving or modernizing public health data?
2: Well, um, Uh, Investing in the workforce, first of all, Um, many local health departments aren't able to use the systems that are available and they don't have the talent, expertise, Um, understanding sort of the details and complexities of the systems that exist um, particularly at the local level and making sure those are known to the other chains of the data command, you know, whether you're going up towards the state into the CDC or back down. Um, I think really um, helping health departments and in the national partners that serve them to understand that the work it will take to modernize surveillance systems. and the facilitators and barriers to to doing that. Um, Having these conversations are really important and exploring with health departments, the implications of um, shifts in our environment, like pandemic or other parts of um, shifts in health, like um, what impact they have on data availability, access and surveillance. And then, you know, overlaying all of this um, is just the issue of uh, personal data <laughs> and um, in HIPAA requirements and in keeping making sure that we are always able to maintain that trust with the public in terms of their information and their data so that we don't lose it during the times when we need it most, like right now.
0: That notion of kind of public trust and uh you know, the ability of, you know, the, the, the broad public uh, to, you know, appreciate the work that public health organizations do, to, to have faith that, right, that they'll keep their privacy safe, that they have their best interests at heart. Obviously, you know, you've talked a little bit already about how that's, that's been challenged, you know, by the polarization that, that we see out uh, in the environment today. Um, obviously, you know, communications broadly is, is one of the main tools that these folks wield. Um, obviously they have statutory powers and they, they have a, a very small amount of resource. Generally, uh, it seems like to, to actually implement actions on their own, but public communications is such an important tool for for public health officials. Um, how, how do public health officials get their messages through to the public uh, so that the entire population, right, can be healthy uh, in in such a polarized time.
2: Yes, it, it, it requires constant attention, um, and um, and we can't afford really to to go back in time. You know. I like to think about the history of public health a little bit here, and I, I sometimes I think we just need we need to return to some of those roots to so that people understand their role in healthy communities as well. Um, you know, Paul Revere was like the very first um, public health official <laughs> back in 1799. He was Boston's first health officer, and um, and back then it was a board of health, believe it or not, that was formed to fight a potential outbreak of cholera. And and the health officials posted signs on lampposts, they held meetings and and led a public information campaign to reduce deaths to cholera. And they did this by explaining them to the public who up until that time really didn't think they thought that they had no control over um Uh, with regard to illness and they just met the you know illness with a degree of resignation that they're probably going to die from it um, without understanding the role that um, an individual plays collectively in their community to promoting health so that social commitment to to the health of the community i think you know we need to go back to that about explaining at the very basic levels you um what 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 we all can do to help You know, um, uh, during uh, times when our country is so divided, and during time of pandemic, Um, I think you know uh, communications are always um, not uh, a a a thing where you can just create a a simple, single communication. Sometimes too, we have to uh, really target communications to different audiences and. And meet them where they are in terms of their understanding of things, um, their the trust level that they have with officials and with the government, um, and you know where they are in their lives. And um, if somebody is struggling to and they're they're hungry and they don't have housing, they might be on the streets. And uh, are they really going to care about um, getting a vaccine? <laughs> no, they can just care about getting their next meal, <laughs> or, or maybe get some shelter over their head. So the communication strategy is complex and deep and um, takes a lot of work luckily for us our public health departments know this they know their communities they know what they have to do and how they have to do it differently for different components and populations within their communities Um, and i would just add you know it's just a tough time for them now because Um, They've always been so trusted in their communities. Um, And now that their broader advice is being ignored or polarized uh, or politicized, um, it becomes harder for them to do their job when usually it just was taken for granted. You know, if somebody told you to boil your water because your water could make you sick, you weren't going to say, I'm not going to boil my water. <laughs> I don't believe you. You usually just boiled your water. <laughs> um, but now uh, public health officials are just trying to keep you safe by giving this advice. And um, and unfortunately, it's, it's being turned into something else and, um, and politicized. So communications are more important than ever to get right and um, to try to rebuild um, that trust that the public should have in their public health officials. They're, they're apolitical. They they don't have a um, I, I, any reason other than making sure their communities are healthy and safe. And um, we have to try to get back to having people understand that.
0: Well, amen to that. Um, you know, before we let you go, Lori, and we and really appreciate your taking the time with us today, of course. Um, uh, NACCHO is not the only organization that act as a, kind of an umbrella, you know, beneath the federal level. So your all's focus is obviously on, um, as your name implies, county and city officials. Uh, but there's an organization that we're gonna be speaking to next week that deals with states and territories, uh, Um can you talk a little bit about, you know, do the two organizations talk or how do you stay aligned and what's the relationship between the two?
2: Sure. Um, so Aston, what we consider to be um, a sister or brother of <laughs> an organization, um, we are in the same family of governmental public health. Um, we, we are... Um, We have similar workforces we just work at different levels of the government. Um, and we do work together on plenty, plenty of projects. Um, the one thing that we do to assure that we are able to work on, um, on things strategically um, at the highest levels of our agencies are um, through what we call joint council, which is a collective of the leaders of ASTO and NATO, and we get together uh, quarterly. Um, at our board levels to talk about what are the things that we can work on that will effectively um, impact and improve governmental public health as a system. from the federal state to the local level we both are excellent partners with cdc hhs asper and the major federal agencies you know how do we work better with our federal agencies to represent the needs of our collective state and local health agencies and um and what do we need to be doing strategically to promote um, governmental public health um, in every way whether it's um, improving outcomes uh, reassuring that the system is working well um, in together and in functioning um, as partners to improve the health of communities, uh, things like that. So we do do it and we, we, we consider it very serious business and um, and we look forward to working with our partners.
0: Well, that's terrific. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, clearly between the two organizations you have, you know, the vast majority of the public health enterprise, you know, in your, in your care yes. in, in, in yeah. a certain sort of way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lori, we're, we're about out of time. Um, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining us. It's been a fascinating look into the kind of the working face of uh, our public health enterprise. Um, any last words that you'd like to leave our listeners with before we sign off?
2: Trust your public health officials. <laughs> they They are. Their whole job is to keep you safe and healthy.
1: Fantastic.
0: Well, hey, we really again we really appreciate you taking the time, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us, and uh, be on the lookout for uh, uh, after this episode. We'll be talking next. With the Chief Medical Officer of the Association for State and Territorial Health Officers. So, it uh, should be a, another fascinating conversation. Uh, Lori Freeman, thanks. Nicola, can't wait to uh, join you in the next conversation and uh, take care, everybody.